So last week we looked at this great verse in 1 Peter, and it tells every believer, here's what you are. You're a chosen king or queen with a citizenship in the eternal nation called the holy nation. That's what you are. Now here's what Peter's going to do. He's gonna say, because this is what you are, act like it. Because of your identity now as kings and queens, rulers, future rulers with Jesus for eternity, start to act like you are that, right? So that's the rest of this chapter. And I just call it the goods. There's four things that were to be good at, if you would. And we're gonna look at them as quick as we can, because I know it's 11 and it gets hot. So number one, verse 11, 1 Peter chapter two. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Number one, good deeds. When someone who is identified as part of this holy nation, when we do something bad, when a pastor gets caught sleeping around on his wife, what happens to the entire body of Christ? We all suffer. It's a black eye. It causes problems for everyone. Oh, those Christians are hypocrites. I always knew it. So our bad deeds cause problems for everybody. So Peter here says, listen, I urge you, I urge you, do good deeds. This little idea has been transformational for me because when Edgewater was planted, I had a different idea of church of this thing called the called out assembly. I thought church was one thing, you came and you taught the Bible and that's it. He's tearing something apart over there, <laughs> getting after it. I thought it was one thing, I call it the come and see model. Just come and see, come and hear a good message and that's all you need to do. Now I have not given up my commitment to teaching God's word, it is huge to me. But I've also begun to see there's another leg that the church walks on. And the real big thing that happened to change my mind happened within three years of Edgewater. And I've mentioned this before, I'll mention it again because it was that important to me. It was 2008, taking my fourth trip to India, had been over there a number of times, but this time we went to a new area, it was called a tribal village. And what the government had done was they took this kind of wandering tribe and they moved them to a permanent village. So they built these concrete walled, metal roofed little huts. They weren't big, they were like six feet by 10 feet and a family would live in them. So that's what they made. It was like the projects almost of India. And so we were headed to that place and so we took a long four wheel drive trail, got out, 
hiked up the side of this mountain to this village. Normally when we would come into a village because we're white people in the middle of nowhere, all the kids would come out and they'd be asking us questions and want to play soccer and you'd have this great time of playing with kids. In this village, there was none of that. It was like really subdued. And it was barren, like nothing green around. It was like the side of this kind of desert hill, miserable. The wind constantly blew, miserable. Like the most miserable place I'd been to India. And I'd been to some hard places in India. And so we were like, wow, this is just not fun here. Turns out that part of the problem there was this, they had no water supply. So they couldn't grow gardens, they couldn't grow food, and they had to walk about a mile and a half, two kilometers to a mud hole that was frequented by all kinds of animals and get their water from a mud hole. Well, that's gonna cause problems, and it did. So they asked us, hey, would you please pray for this gal that's sick? So we said, sure, we'd love to. So we went to one of these little huts, six by 10, and inside of there is this lady, she looked like she was in her early 20s, She's laying on the floor. She did not get up. She didn't make a sound when we came in. She just laid there. And I'm gonna be a bit graphic, but you could see where she had been because she was making circles and there was this dry diarrhea in a ring behind her. Super sad. Husband was over in the corner, just kind of crouched there. And about a 15 month old infant was laying on the mom. Miserable. So, okay, let's pray for her. So we put our hands on her. She was the hottest human I've ever touched like burning up. It's hot in India. She was hotter. So we pray for her. Nothing happens. We leave there. The only thing that changed was our mood. Normally we're joking and having a great time. It was just subdued. It was like, oh, that was heavy. And we had a four hour trip to go to a church that Edgewater helped build. We ended up building about 12 churches over in India. And we are dedicating this church that had just been finished. It was my job to preach. So I'm in no mood to preach, but I get up there. I start preaching on the Good Samaritan. I already selected that. And as I'm preaching the Good Samaritan, you know the story. It's a guy who gets beat up. He's on the side of the road, spinning in circles, dying. And a priest goes walking by, sees him. Instead of helping him, crosses over the road and keeps walking. Maybe he prayed for him. Maybe he didn't. And then a Levite comes, a guy that works at the church. He sees this dude, does the same thing, walks by. And then a good Samaritan, a different ethnic group, actually a hated ethnic group, sees the dude beat up by the side of the road. He stops, puts him on his donkey, carries him down to an inn, gives him healing medication, pays for his hospital visit, if you would. And as I'm teaching it, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm the priest and I'm the Levite. We could have picked her up and carried her down to the car and taken her to a hospital. We could have done that. We left her there to die. And it was like, I wanted to quit in the middle of that sermon and be like, okay, that's it. We're going back. So after I finished preaching, I grabbed Billy Graham, not the Billy Graham. He's the India Billy Graham. He's an awesome evangelist, fantastic human being. I grabbed Billy Graham. I said, hey, we have to go back to that village. I need to go back there. We need to take her. We need to take her to the hospital right now. Well, the next morning, I was supposed to be doing a pastor's conference with 300 pastors. I said, I don't care about that. This is more important. He said, Matt, you do what you're supposed to do. We'll get her. We'll get her to the hospital. I said, okay. So they got up there. They got her to the hospital at 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, The doctor gave her 
You know, she was very dehydrated. She had dysentery. She was pretty messed up. And he was like a day or two more. And there's probably a little hope for her. So before we left, we actually got a picture of her sitting up, smiling with her baby in the hospital. So I was like, oh, praise the Lord. But I'm talking to Billy. I'm like, this is just going to happen again. If they're getting their water from a mud hole, all we did was kick the can down the road three months or six months or a year. How can we change this? And Billy said, the problem with that village is this. You can't get well drilling equipment up there. It needs a well drilled, but you can't get the equipment up there. I'm like, Billy, dude, you are a fantastically bright guy. Figure something out. He said, okay. So a month later, I'm back in the States. He calls me and he says, okay, Matt, do you know those trucks that have the really big tires? I'm like, I live in Grants Pass. Everybody drives them. He's like, no, no, they're really big tires. I said, you mean a monster truck? A monster truck. There's a monster truck down here and we can hire this monster truck and it can pull the well drilling equipment up on the side of the hill and we can drill a well in that village. I said, how much will it cost? He said, it will be $12,000 for everything. Well running water. I brought it to the elders. The elder says, let's do it. So they drilled it. They put a well in. All of a sudden things start to change. Good fresh water. They start growing vegetables. They start growing crops. They start having animals. Everything transforms. Well, there was this government official whose job it was every 18 months or a year to go around to these places that the government had made and check up on them. So he shows up a year later. The place is like a Garden of Eden. He's like, what in the world happened? They said, call Billy Graham. Not the Billy Graham, our Billy Graham. So they give him the number. Billy tells him the whole story. This is what that government official said before he hung up the phone. He said, if you guys keep doing stuff like this, and he was Hindu, if you guys keep doing stuff like this, all of India will believe in Jesus. I said, whoa, that is cool. It's what Peter's saying right here. It's what Peter's saying right now. He's saying, verse 12, they speak evil against you as evildoers, which happens all the time in Christ, to Indian Christians. But they may see your good deeds and glorify God. When our good deeds go out in front of us, it brings glory to God. The reason why we as a family, myself, we're involved in foster care is because we realize that good deed, man, it brings glory to our heavenly father. The reason why we started Safe Families was here's a way that we can reunite at-risk families because that brings good deeds, brings glory to our Heavenly Father. We're doing home bridging right now. We buy these junky homes and we use you guys' volunteer effort and we're on home bridging number four right now. And it's to help people, good, hardworking families that will never be able to afford a home in Southern Oregon because the prices are so jacked up. It's to help them get into their own homes. Because I think God cares about the place you live. It's called the Garden of Eden and it's called New Jerusalem. He cares about the place you live, right? And all these things, COVID. When COVID-19 hit back in March, we heard that Head Start was being shut down. And so these families that depended on Head Start, most of them, you know, families that are working hard in order to make ends meet. They don't have a lot of extra cash. They're gonna face this hardship of what do we do with our kids? How do we put them? Where do we put them in daycare? What are we going to do? So we immediately made an appointment with Head Start. We went down there on Friday. Monday, it was being shut down. We said, hey, what can we do to help you? 
We will open up our facility. We will take all of your kids. We'll watch them for their parents. We'll do that. You guys know that story. Well, we were only able to do it one day and then we got shut down. But then I had a meeting just a month ago with the head of Josephine County Head Start and the head of Jackson County Head Start. And they said, we cannot stop talking about you guys and what you did for us. Because good deeds bring glory to God. Grand Spouse High School has to do a virtual graduation. I'm like, we don't do virtual stuff. We don't have the technology. How do we do that? And so we're like, hey, we know how to do that. When I say we, what I really mean is Josh Cunningham knows how to do it, but I'll take credit for it. <laughs> so Josh is like, I can do it. We can virtual do this. We can do this thing. And how many times did we get mentioned about that? Like it was over and over. Usually it wasn't Edgewater Christian Fellowship. It was Edgewater Community Church, but I'm fine with that. Right? Because good deeds bring glory to God. That's what we're supposed to do. And here's the thing about good deeds. No one argues about them. People argue theologically things. They'll argue about the existence of God, the exclusivity of Jesus, creation versus evolution, was Genesis creation account six literal days. You can argue about everything in the world. No one argues about good deeds. No one's saying you shouldn't have drilled that well in that tribal village for those people. No one's saying you shouldn't take care of at-risk family or at-risk kids. No one's saying you shouldn't help people get in and own their own homes so they're out of the perpetual cycle of renting. No one's saying that. They're like, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I've said this and I'll say it again. If Grant's passage changed, it's because of people like my wife who give themselves to foster care and give themselves to safe family and give themselves to home bridging, right? My wife, we, we had foster care kids up till, I don't know, three weeks ago or four weeks ago. My wife still checks in with the mom, goes over, sees how she's doing, wants to help, pours in. That's how Grant's passage changed. Good deeds. Is there a good deed that God has put on your heart? Go for it. Go for it. You're a king. You're a queen in the holy nation. Go for it. Do it. See what God might do with your simple good deed. So number one, good deeds. Number two, good citizens. Verse 13, how appropriate. Be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Ah. <sighs> You know what be subject means? Be subject. It means submit. And submission is only submission 
if I don't agree with it. If I agree with it, it's called agreement, not submission. So it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I do not like that, but God did not check with me when he wrote the Bible. It says, honor everyone, honor the emperor. You know who the emperor was at this time? Nero, a really, really bad emperor. Honor the emperor. To bring that into 2020, you know what that means? Honor Donald J. Trump or honor Kate Brown, right? Both sides, both sides, honor them. And I'll be honest with you, that's very hard for me. I sit here and I look at this piece of plastic and it drives me crazy. It makes my rebellious heart say no, right? I'm up on this screen, I hate that. The reason why I have not been up on that screen is because I don't want to be up on that screen. But they tell me because of this plastic thing, you're all over the place, you have to be up on the screen now. I'm like, ah, oh, I hate it. It's super hard for me. And the part that I hate the most is the contradictions with the government, right? So we are limited out here to 250 people by executive order. We could creatively probably get 700 people out there to really help us but we can't, according to executive order. But every night for the last 62 nights, thousands of people gather together outside in massive crowds in Portland and burn stuff underneath the government's approval. And I just go, ah, that makes me angry. It's a contradiction. And we could sit here and brainstorm and figure out hundreds of ways the government contradicts itself because that's what the government does. But I have to ask myself, what good does that do? At the end of the day, what good does that do? Well, Matt, what about Hebrews 10, 24? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together even more as you see that day. And I'm seeing that day bright and clear right now. Here's the thing, the limit of 100 doesn't affect the majority of churches. I talked to pastors in Grants Pass. Average size of a church in America is 70 people. The majority of churches are like, man, big what, man? I still do what I'm doing. For most of church history, the average size has been about 120 people. So really, the edict affects this thing, the big church thing. And so I always have to step back and say, is this really something that affects Christendom or is this something that affects me? I gotta ask that question because most churches are like, mm, we're good. Well, Matt, isn't there a time to disobey? Sure, everyone should have a line in the sand. Daniel had a line in the sand, but he did a lot of submitting before he came to that line in the sand, right? You know, Daniel, he was transplanted from Jerusalem, God city to Babylon, the most evil city in the Bible. And when he was transported there, he said, okay. Submitted. When he got there, they changed his name. Okay. He submitted. When he gets there, they enroll him in the University of Babylon, not the best school to go to. And he submits. But then it came 
and I want you to eat unkosher food. And that was a line of sand for him. No, he wouldn't do it. And then later on in his story, there's a law made by the king that says, you cannot pray to anyone but me. And Daniel refuses that law as well. No, I won't pray to man. I'll pray only to God. And he gets thrown into the lion's den for that. So there is to be a place where you have a line in the sand. Peter, the author of our story, both blows it on this and does well on this. So he blows it when Jesus is arrested. Soldiers come out, unjustly arrest Jesus in the middle of the night, right? What does Peter do? Pulls out a sword, does not attack a soldier, attacks a servant. It's kind of like when People go into Walmart and the 18-year-old out there making minimum wage is telling you to put on a mask and you start yelling at him. That's not, he's just making minimum wage. It's not his, that's all. He's just trying to do what his job is. Don't get mad at him. Not him. Kind of like that. So Peter does that. Pulls out his sword, chops off the servant's ear. What do you call that? Bad aim. No one is like, hey, watch me chop off this dude's ear. Woo, look at that. No, it's bad aim. What does Jesus say? Put away your sword. Picks up the ear and puts it back on the servant like Mr. Potato Head. Blew it. It's not what God wanted. But then later on, he's matured. And in Acts chapter five, after he's already been put in jail, after he's had the snot beaten out of him for preaching Jesus, they call him before the government and they say, don't preach Jesus anymore. And what does Peter say? He doesn't pull out a sword. He does not get angry. He just says, should I obey God or you? I'm gonna continue to preach Jesus. There is to be lines in the sand. And for me, it's real simple. I think as Christians, and Peter kind of mentions it here, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Christians, fundamentally, what we're supposed to be is this. We are supposed to be opposed to evil. First evil in myself, Lord, search my heart, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on your path everlasting. First, I oppose the evil in me and then I oppose the evil around me. And Christians have always stood up against evil. Abortion, killing of babies is evil. So Christians say that's evil and we'll stand against it. China has a one baby policy. And after you have that one baby, the next one's supposed to be aborted. Christians say that is wrong, that's evil, and we stand against that. William Wilberforce, because of his faith in Jesus, saw racist slavery and said, that is evil, and he stood up against it and changed the British Empire. If you've never studied that, it's fascinating. Britain bankrupted a generation fighting slavery. They took their navy and their money and actually patrolled the seas to stop it because that's how horrific it was. I think God blessed Britain for 100 years because of that. We stand against it. Racism is evil. We stand against that, right? Horrific work conditions that are dangerous are evil. We stand against that. You just keep going down. As Christians, our line in the stand is we are supposed to be opposing evil. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we look for. But I'll tell you, big picture, number one, I think this. Church, Edgewater, is supposed to be an asset to our community. As good citizens, my hope would be 
Grant's past says, we are so glad Edgewater is a church in our community. They are an asset to us. That's my hope. That if Edgewater was to cease, the city would cry. We're supposed to be an asset. And I'm gonna go out on a limb maybe, and I'm gonna say being an asset in this rising environment is gonna be harder and harder, especially this year. This is an election year. Everything is political. Everything is politicized. Everything is crazy right now because of this. And there's a movement, and it's deep into our, every part of our culture right now. And I talked about this at length a year ago in our Ignorance series. But the theory is this. It's called critical theory. It's also known as cultural Marxism. And what is being taught in our universities today to our leaders is critical theory. And critical theory, cultural Marxism is this. It defines the world like this. The problem in the world is you have been oppressed and there are oppressors. And we need to do everything in our power to tear down oppression. And that's what you see. What's driving what's happening in Portland and throughout our country right now is what's been taught to our kids. Cultural theory, tear it down, right? So it's been applied to everything. I'll give you some examples. Gender, having two genders is oppressive. It makes victims of people. So the two gender system has to be tore down. So that's what we've done. Now, how many genders are there? Like 75, I think. Because that was an oppressive system. So let's tear it down and let's build something new. All right, so gender happened to gender. Capitalism is oppressive. Right, you listen to people in the House of Representatives, how they talk about capitalism, and it's, it's oppressive. So let's go Robin Hood. Let's take from the rich and give to the poor. So you see that. Let's tear this thing down. Let's change it. Family is oppressive now. Dads and moms telling their kids, you're a boy or you're a girl is oppressive language. So now kids can do whatever they want. They can decide what they're gonna be, they decide what they're gonna do, and they can be given drugs at a school and you'll never know it. And if you go to court to try to stop it, good luck with that today because families become oppressive. I can keep going on and on and on, I won't. But that's the system now. So the system is you do whatever you need to do to tear this thing down. So there's a new definition. It's really become the new religion of our land. So it's redefined things. Evil and sin is oppression. The heroes and the saints are the social justice warriors that at any means necessary will tear it down, burn it to the ground, destroy it, do whatever. Dox you, cancel you, shame you, call you a Nazi, whatever it is. They're the new heroes. And moral excellence is you be whatever you think you should be today. And if it changes tomorrow, that's fine. You act authentically on what you're supposed to be. That's it, so let's tear it all down. Here's what scares me as a believer. History does, but even more the words of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says about this idea. Yeah, I'm not saying our, our country is perfect, it is not. But look out for this, so listen to what Jesus says. It's Matthew chapter 12. He's talking about problems. When the unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. 
Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And here's the broad generalization. So also will it be with this evil generation. This whole idea, just tear it all down. What happens, and look at history. Look at the French Revolution. The guillotine was hungry, it could not stop. It just kept chopping and chopping and chopping. They didn't know when to stop. Was there a problem with the nobility at that time? Absolutely. Once they cast that out though, their problems got seven times worse. Or look at the Bolshevik Revolution or Russia in the early 1900s, right? They tore it down, they didn't know when to stop. 50 to 60 million Russians were killed by their own government, seven times worse. So it scares me. What are we tearing down? Be careful of that. And as Christians, here's the thing. We don't, we don't ascribe to critical theory. The, the problem in the world is not oppression. The problem in the world is sin. Salvation is not tearing it down and burning it to the ground. Salvation is in a person named Jesus. And we're not to act authentically on how we feel. The Bible says you deny yourself you take up your cross and you follow Jesus. Those are the solutions we talk about. And so we gotta be really careful as Christians because we can get sucked into these arguments that just go and they just never end. Don't get sucked into the argument. Come back to the solution. Sin, Jesus, deny yourself. Those are the solutions that we talk about because you can often win the argument and you lose the person. And the goal is to make disciples. That's the goal. Don't lose that. Don't lose that. So good deeds, good citizens, and be a good worker. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to do the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Be a good worker. We did a ton of work on this kind of idea in Proverbs. You can go grab those studies if you want. We talked about work in the book of Ecclesiastes maybe a year and a half ago. So we've kind of done that. Here's the one thing that Peter adds that is really interesting. He talks about when you have a really bad boss. He goes, big deal if you blow it and you get fired. That happens to anybody. Here's the other side. When you are a good worker, when you show up early and you leave late, when you are actually working at your job, not working Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or social media or doom scrolling. You're actually doing your job. When you've done all that, and then you get blamed for something you did not do. Peter would say, oh, now you have the opportunity. Now that's your moment. Why? Because you have the opportunity, he says, if you endure this, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God you got an opportunity. So let me give you an example of this from my own life. It's a long time ago. I was working at Applegate Christian Fellowship waiting to be sent on the mission field in Vanuatu. So I'm there and I was a grunt guy. I built storage stuff, just whatever Joe Strobel needed done, I did it. Put together chairs, you name it. So I'm the grunt guy. 
Well, there was this Sunday where it started raining and services were outside and they had to be moved from outside inside. So it was a massive thing that everybody was involved in. So I'm helping Joe do his stuff. When I was done with him, I thought maybe the kid's wing needs help. So I went over to the kid's wing to help there. When I got there, the guy over, his name is Rick Cohen, just railed me. He's like, what are you doing? You should have been here two hours ago. Did you oversleep? What's your deal, man? We need your help a long time ago. Get to work. And so I just put my head down, okay, and got to work. Well, someone heard this that knew I wasn't a kid's guy. I was a Joe Strobel guy. I was a work the grounds kind of guy. So they later grabbed Rick and said, you know what? Matt's not actually a kid's guy. He was overworking with Joe Strobel and then came to help you. So Rick came later, said, man, I am so sorry. I didn't know that. Apologized. And then he said this, I can't believe the way that you handled that, that you just put your head down. You didn't argue with me because there's a bunch of people around and it would have made a scene. You just put your head down and worked. I said, well, thank you. So out of that came this. I got an invitation. In That's not even close to a word. I got an invitation, myself and my family, when he went out and planted a church in upstate New York, Syracuse, to come visit him. So I did. And then we stayed at his house, and he took us around, and we toured all around with his family and just had a blast of a time with him. And then this church in Burlington, Vermont, was needing a new head pastor. And he put my name in and said, hey, you guys should talk to Matt Heverly and have him come out here and be your head pastor. All that happened because I put my head down and said, okay, okay. I got, there's this little phrase here. It says, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Literally in the Greek, it's charis para theo. Grace alongside God, you get God's favor. God sees, ultimately. God sees. Anybody in here have a bad boss? Don't raise your hand. They might be here. Pray this in. Here's your opportunity. Who knows what God can do? When all the other people are sitting around complaining and grumbling about the boss or the workplace or how bad it is, don't engage in that. Be different. Be distinct. Be a good worker. God sees what you want is his favor because it'll pay, you, pay off in ways that you could not imagine down the road. So good deeds, good citizen, good worker. And then lastly, here's the reason why we can do it because of a good example, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We have a good example. Number one, he was innocent. No sin in Jesus. You and I, by the time we were two years old, we were sinners, right? We were stealing other kids' toys. We were not subject to the authority of our parents. We'd say, no, no. If we did not get our way, we threw ourselves on the ground and threw a tantrum. Like little kids, 
infants. They get so angry at you. If they could murder you, they would. But God made them weak so they wouldn't, right? They're sinners, all of us. But on Jesus, he was innocent. He was controlled. Verse 23 says, when people reviled him, he did not revile back, he did not threaten. He didn't get on Facebook and make comments and get on social media and attack people. He didn't do that. Why? Because it says he trusted the one that judges justly. He trusted God. Do you trust God? Do you trust that God can wring good from evil? Genesis 50, 20. What you meant for evil, raw, he has turned to good, tove, to the saving of many lives. Do you believe that God can wring good from evil? Do you trust God? Because when you do, Isaiah 26, 3 says this, he will keep those in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. I trust God. A good discipline to do every once in a while is to make a list of things you cannot control. I can't control the weather. I cannot control the economy. I can't control other people. I can't control my spouse. I can't control the government. I can't even control my cat. And then right over the top of that, in God I trust. The stuff you can control, you say, God, help me partner with you in this. The stuff you cannot control, okay. No use in complaining and getting anxious and worried over it. I can't do anything about that. So in God, I trust. And then lastly, it says, he's our example. The word example there is the Greek word, hupogrammon. Grammon is grammar. And it's what would happen to Greek children 2,000 years ago when they were learning their grammar, when they were learning the alphabet, what they would do is they would make dashed lines and then the kids would overwrite hoopogrammon over the dashed lines. Is that how we do it today? Yeah, right? Remember kindergarten? Draw over the A, right? The dashed lines. That's hoopogrammon. That's an example. Here's the goal for you and me. The goal for our life is that the Holy Spirit, as we immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit writes Christ's life over us, that we become more and more and more and more like him. That's the goal of this. That's what's supposed to happen to us. It's like this, maybe. Here's my best example. So many years ago, we took a vacation to Carlsbad, California. Brilliant place. And my son Elijah was two. And he was just learning to ride a bike. So I had a long time there. We had two weeks down there to help him ride the bike. It was in January, it was beautiful weather. Gabrielle, my other daughter, my daughter, my youngest daughter was four. Bella was seven, Chris was nine. They rode, rode no problem. So I'm with Elijah and my job was to try to keep him from skinning himself up. So he's on the bike and you're yelling instructions, right? Hey, buddy, keep your eyes on the road. Don't look at me, look ahead. Keep pedaling the bike, not too fast, not too slow. Hey, keep upright, don't turn too sharp, right? You're yelling all these instructions at them as they're learning. And then all of a sudden what happens is this, it clicks, it becomes second nature. I don't have to run alongside them anymore. The ability to ride a bike becomes second nature. The word, if you would, all my words have become flesh and dwelt in him. 
and they empower him. And now it's wheelies and jumps. And now I'm saying, please don't ride your bike and kill yourself, right? That's what's supposed to happen in the Christian life. As we immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus, we're praying that God's spirit begins to write his life over the top of ours. And we begin to look like Jesus and we respond like Jesus did. When we're reviled, we don't revile. We don't threaten. We don't lose our temper. We don't chop off people's ears. We don't do that anymore. We become like Jesus as our example, the hupo grandman. And so every Sunday we take communion together. And part of taking communion is that we're asking that the word might become flesh. That our lives would be overwritten with his life. And Peter says this, by his wounds, you have been healed. I have a saying to people that come in for counseling. I say this, no one gets out unwounded. This world has a way, this culture has a way of cutting us and wounding us and hurting us where it's the worst. No one gets out unwounded. But we don't protest and we don't riot and we don't burn things to the ground. We don't, like, we don't act like victims. We say, Jesus, heal us. Jesus, heal us. Cure us. We can get lost in this world and we can be wondering where to go. We say, Jesus, shepherd us, oversee our souls. And that's what we do every Sunday. We're coming and saying, hupogram in us, overwrite your life with ours. And so Jesus, as we take of your broken body, we bring to you our brokenness and you give to us in return your wholeness. So I pray for those in this congregation who have fresh wounds and those who have old scars. Would you heal us? May we respond so differently because of your healing. Not playing victims or oppressors or being oppressed. But even as Peter says, living is free. We've been set free from those traps, those deceits, because we've been healed by you. So would the word become flesh and dwell in us today? Let's eat together. take the cup the cup of kings and queens dining at your table the cup of the good shepherd you said the hired people flee when danger comes the good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep that's what you did because you're the good shepherd so shepherd us this week Oversee us, Lord. If there's areas in our hearts that are bent incorrectly, would you unbend them today? If there's ways that we have been responding that are ungodly and unkind and evil, would you root it out of us by the power of your love and blood? Shepherd our souls today, we ask. Let's drink together.
pray this in your name. Amen.